I'm Derek Thompson, the host of the podcast Plain English. We tackle technology, politics, culture, history, everything that's happening in the world and why it matters. New episodes of Plain English drop every Tuesday and Friday on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive that sets the pace and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that throws you one moment and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just... Once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. David? Yes? I was in Philadelphia last week. What do you think I did with my spare time? <laughs> Did you go to any used bookstores? Oh, yes, I did. My gosh. What a lucky guess on your part. I, I, was, I did the same thing in um, Ocean City, New Jersey. But we're, we're very predictable. Philly turns out to have really good used bookstores. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. What did you find? Well, there was a place called Mostly Books, mm-hmm. which just had stuff all over the place. I mean, on the floor, on the <laughs> shelves, all over the place. It's which a is a kind of. That's the kind of bookstore you and I got. You and I like. Mm-hmm. We don't need the three thousand dollar first edition in mylar jackets. That's fine, but what we really want is stuff. Oh yeah, a bookstore that looks like our house <laughs> is a better bookstore. It looks like our house before we both got married, probably. But yes, go on. <laughs> so I'm walking around mostly books, and I picked up a gently used copy of the book King Leopold's Ghost. Oh, wow. By Adam Hochschild. Yeah. Subtitle, A Story of Greed, Terror, and Heroism in Colonial Africa. Now, you know King Leopold's Ghost. Came out in 1998. I would like to nominate this book for a new category. The I Did Everything But Read It book. (laughs) Oh, no. Go on. There's a certain kind of book, David, where when it comes out, in this case in 1998, you read the ecstatic reviews. You may buy the book. You might talk about the book with friends. You might know what's in the book, at least in a generalized way. Mm -hmm. You may even at some point convince yourself you have read the book, but you've never actually read it. Mm-hmm. You've just absorbed it in some non-reading capacity. <laughs> now, what I want to know is what are the I did everything but read it books in your library? Well, not in my literal library. You mean in my like in the in my hypoth- my, my metaphorical library. In the library of your mind, sure. <clears throat> um 
Well, does it count if you read the New Yorker article that the book was based on? Does that, <laughs> you did put that criteria in there. I did um, everything but read it, but I also read the New Yorker excerpt. Uh, yeah, Books by a whole, New Yorker there, writers, by the way, figure a lot in this category. They figure a lot. But there's this whole, there's a whole section to read the article, love the article, hear that the article is being made into a book, get really excited about it, talk about how much you can't wait for it, and then never read the book. But mm -hmm. or probably buy the book and then never read the book. My list, even separate from those, is quite, quite long. Uh, because as, uh, you know, avid listeners of this podcast will know, I worked at a bookstore at politics and prose, one of the best bookstores in the country, um, in the very early two thousands. And so my job was to pretend I'd read a bunch of books and, and, and well, I could, I guess I could have read them. Nobody would have, you know, thought that was odd, I guess, if I'd actually read it, but there's a whole, like, I mean, I only worked there for a year or so, but there's a whole sort of like three year window of books that I only, only in my like late 30s started coming to grips with the fact that I had not read, right? I mean, because I was surrounded by them all the time and then sold them, like hand-sold books multiple times a day with the, and the sales technique was, oh, you're going to love this. Let me tell you about it. Implicitly, I've read it, right? Um, King, Le King Leopold's Ghost is a great one. I don't know if I would have said that, but that's, I definitely hand-sold that book. And then also just for all the, if there's anybody out there taking notes, I also worked as like a editorial assistant in the book publishing world right after working at the bookstore. So my timelines may be off. There were a lot of books that I lied about having read in that near decade <laughs> as well. <laughs> um, but like the whole like narrative nonfiction boom, like I, could like I did read Into the Wild, but everything that sort of surrounded that, I did not read. You know, like uh, Black Hawk Down. There was the more sort of like frou-frou ones, like The Girl with the Pearl Earring. Oh, that was a novel, The Girl with the Pearl Earring. But like everything from the, like Mark Kurlansky, Simon Winchester. Ooh, uh, good ones. Natal uh, Nathaniel Philbrook. Like that whole, like uh -huh. that whole school did not read a single one of those. Um, uh, even like, I definitely did not read Malcolm Gladwell or Atul Gawande in book form and definitely pretended I had read those and could probably, <laughs> you know, speak at some length about their contents. Um, what else? Uh, oh, The Devil in the White City, which I did finally read as an audio, but listen to as an audio book in the not too distant past. That was obviously like the big, one of the biggest of the period. Uh, what else? Um, I can literally like see myself holding the book. Oh, like, um, what was the one about depression? Um, the Noonday Demon. Andrew Re Solomon. Fake read the heck out of that book. Um, there was a whole lot of like the Middle Eastern. So I don't remember if like the Kite Runner was out then, but that feels like a book I definitely pretended to read. That was very like, like you know, of the moment at that period in time, obviously. And we're selling those books, books like that, hand over fist at the store. Um, I did read a lot of the fiction or some of the fiction of that era, although in retrospect, would happily trade in the time I spent with like. Jonathan Franzen and Jonathan Safran Ford to have actually read some of the nonfiction books I didn't read. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that, oh, 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 oh uh, Emperor of Maladies. That's my last one. But <laughs> this oh, one, very, we're that's a, a very, really good one. <laughs> this is all a very specific thing. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely more books in my <clears throat> later uh, semi-adulthood that um, I would didn't necessarily lie about, but just sort of, was so familiar with something that it felt like I had, like you said, everything but read the book. Um, man, the, the list probably is too long.
It's such a fascinating category because you could probably put you or I on a podcast about these books. And if there were at least three or four guests, we could probably hold down our part of the podcast. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, listen, I have a wrestling podcast. You know, wrestling podcast, obviously, I, I watch all the wrestling. But there was a big show last night that I couldn't watch. And so I couldn't go on the after show. And I, and But as it was rolling around, I was like, well, I vaguely followed this on Twitter as a mental experiment. <laughs> could I go? Could I show? Could I go on the show and pass myself off as having watched it? I, I probably could have. You know, that's I mean, a, it's, that's a new category. Can I go on the post game podcast of the game or wrestling match that I only followed on Twitter? Mm-hmm. Maybe you could probably just put together a soundboard of tweets and Reddit comments and just like act and and totally have a <laughs> perfectly fine podcast about something. <laughs> By the way, so I'm in Philadelphia. I get on the plane back to L.A. And wouldn't you know it, David, they're beckoning to me from my carry-on bag is King Leopold's ghost. I pull it out. I open to page one. It is so good. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is what I was missing all those years. I ripped through like four or five chapters of it, despite it being really late at night. I was so happy I bought this book and actually read this book. So let this be an advertisement. If you have books that you've done everything but read, they're probably worth it. Start with David's list and go from there. Dude, I mean, my list is great. I'm starting. I'm going to go grab King Leopold's Ghost. This sounds fantastic. I mean, I I know the book. And now, and as soon as you brought it up, I was just like, oh, that's one I would really love to read. Uh, The Press Box this summer will be an eight-part series uh, book club with our listeners on King Leopold's Ghost. Join us. Please. Coming up on today's podcast on Friday, the Supreme Court ended the constitutional right to abortion. What position did journalists find themselves in after the decision? We have a new frontier in journalism, David, the I'm not reporting this, but scoop. Plus, new media with NBA players, novels read by your favorite podcasters, and more on the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis, David Shoemaker, and producer Erica Cervantes here. David, the Supreme Court draft opinion that was published in Politico last month turned out to be a pretty accurate roadmap to future events. On Friday, the court reversed the 1973 decision, Roe versus Wade. There is no longer, the court's 5-4 majority says, a constitutionally recognized right for women to have an abortion. Now, reversing a 49-year-old ruling is a highly emotional moment. If you're politically inclined like David and I are, it's an awful moment. There are reporters out there, David, who'd like to say that. But as soon as the Supreme Court's decision came down, several news organizations said, by the way, please suppress whatever it is you feel and do not tweet. The New York Times, according to Jay Rosen, repeated language from its social media policy If our journalists are perceived as biased, or if they engage in editorializing on social media, that can undercut the credibility of the entire newsroom. The Gannett chain of newspapers sent an email per Hannah Tamiz of The New Yorker, which said, you cannot use social media to take a political position, criticize or attack a candidate, or express personal feelings about an outcome or ruling. So if you're a reporter at the Austin American Statesman or Indianapolis Star or another Gannett paper and you're upset, you're not allowed to tweet that you're upset. 
What do we think of journalists not being allowed to weigh in on this decision on social media? Oh, man, it's tough. I mean, I think that, um, well, let me just start by saying, like, I understand the position of the, I mean, of, of where, whoever's writing the newsroom memos and where they're coming from. There's definitely been times in my work history uh, where either I or someone else has said when something happens, like, this is probably not a great time to, like, to be real active on Twitter, right? I mean, you, and it's not about politics or anything else. It's just about kind of temperance, you know? Um and obviously the higher up, like the, the higher that that message comes down from, the more sort of mechanical and 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 uh, the more it feels just like you're suffering under a dictatorship, you know, and 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 that's a really justifiable feeling. But I can understand where, like, where it begins. Right. Uh, I think that it's in some ways this is an extension of. And I, I think it, the feeling is that it's an extension of the Trump era sort of conundrum that a lot of newsrooms faced when they were, you know, faced with uh, uh, dealing with what, uh, dealing with 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 lies as if they're facts, right? With like, what weight do you give to something when someone is just like lying on his face or, or just completely incorrect? Is that because that goes beyond the standard definition of politics or whatever else, you know? Um, but, you know, <clears throat> this is, this does feel like sort of a, it's easy, to, it's really easy to see why someone would say this is not a political, I'm not taking a political stance by saying that this is a incredible, like, moral and cultural catastrophe that should be acknowledged as such. Because by giving, because by defining it down, to a one side versus the other political disagreement, you're actually giving too much credence to an illegitimate side of the illegitimate side side of the conversation. Both because a lot of people who are arguing on one side aren't arguing in good faith, but also because this isn't to to most. I think to most people on both sides, who, most loud, vocal people on both sides, but particularly to the people on the pro-choice side, this is not a matter of politics. You know, this is this is a this is a matter of like inherent rights you know it's a it's a matter it, it's a it's a it, it goes much deeper than any sort of legislative act or judicial ruling or anything like that so to tell people that they can't voice an opinion on this obviously that that memo is coming down because it's such a contentious issue because it's such a big you know because it, it's going to be such a big deal that people are going to be paying attention to what reporters say but it's a big deal because it's a big fucking deal you know you can't you can't just hand wave it away. I have some sympathy, like I said, for, you know, bosses who are trying to figure out the best way through this. But I mean, an edict like that just really seems to be misguided at its, at its very, at its, at its like moral core. Kyle Coster, the big lead points out an additional sentence in the Gennett email. Get a load of this. If you notice a newsroom colleague posting inappropriate comments, immediately alert your supervisor. So is this like the <laughs> this is like the Texas abortion law? This is like you see something, you say something, and you probably would you get ten thousand dollars for like pointing out that your coworkers going mad on Twitter? I mean, that's kind of crazy. Can you imagine that? Are you liable if you saw it and didn't say anything? No, well, I don't think this is a, has a rule of law, but they are saying. 
please tell us immediately if you see someone violating our social media policy. It's wild. Pretty wild. It's funny because I feel like you and I have talked about this a couple of times. In certain ways, I like that newspapers are anachronistic. I like that they're different. I like that in the case of the New York Times, they're not just publishing political stuff that's going to get lots of traffic and op-ed columns are going to get lots of traffic. They also cover the arts and ballet and books and other things that you and I are interested in. There's something old-fashioned about that. There's also something old-fashioned about the way they deliver articles, which sometimes, (laughs) sometimes is kind of cool. I just want to read an article about this. And then my favorite podcasters will chew on it later. I'm not talking about both sides in political things or something like that. I'm just saying sometimes there's something kind of nice about that. Now, listen, the, the history of newspaper journalism is often over mythologized, right? I mean, from from, sure. bo- from both sides. I mean, I think that the general perception of what, you know, the life of a of a of a newspaper scribe in the you know mid 20th century is probably you know just either imaginary or mythology brian's smoking a, a mimed cigarette as i'm saying hey this. boss i got a hot scoop for you but if you think i mean but there's you can't think i mean you can't possibly think that the newspaper people of of that era or of any era were without political judgment political opinions without moral judgment or opinion. i mean do you really think that the as you did doing the, the the chain smoking hand gesture, do you really think that the staff of like the New York Herald Tribune in this, if they were like time transplanted by by like you know time machine to today, would just be like, all right, let's just let's just do this down the this in, down the straight and narrow. We got to report it as just the facts, you know. <laughs> you of know, course not, not. No, they would be sitting in the newsroom like like just cursing out loud, right? I mean, and they and the fact that we don't have record of it, well we do have a lot of record in people's memoirs and and uh and memoirs about the newspapers and nonfiction books, essays that these a lot of those guys wrote. Um particularly the Herald Tribune. I don't I mean their 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 creative output was obviously not limited to jur- to newspaper journalism and as such we we know them a little bit better as humans, but uh but I mean, these obviously not. If, if the fact that they didn't have the fact that they didn't have Twitter is the only reason that you can ascribe any sort of neutrality to any journalist prior to the year two thousand, yes. right? And and the fact that people have to be on watch now, like I said, from the top down, you can you can attempt to understand the motive of the people on top. But yet they are they are adding a level of discretion of whatever you want to say to the job description that never existed before, right? I mean, to to act like this, the perception that news is unbiased is a goal that has existed for a long time, frankly, could exist no matter what people are saying on Twitter. That's a little, that's, that's beside the point. And that's kind of the whole point of the conversation. But yeah, that ideal has always been there, but the idea, but but Twitter is, a, I mean, regulating what people can say on Twitter or slash in the, you know, public sphere is a very new thing. And it should be something that we really pay attention to. I believe this feels anachronistic for the sake of being anachronistic. Mm-hmm. I just, I just don't. I mean, Wesley Lowry was tweeting about this on Friday and Saturday. He's thought about this, I think as, as, as much and as well as anybody else. And he says, it comes down to the perception of objectivity, which is about theoretical reader perception, impossible to control versus objectivity of work process, 
What matters is whether a journalist's journalism is fair. So you see the difference there. Is what I am putting into the paper and the way it got into the paper fair versus does some reader who I can't even put my finger on potentially think, <laughs> potentially perceive that I am unfair? Mm-hmm. One demands journalists silence part of their identity, Lowry writes. The other respects their humanity. He goes on to say, by attempting to control for theoretical reader perception, we empower enemies of our journalism and other politically motivated actors to work the refs and concern troll about personal bias as a means of silencing or otherwise muting journalism and journalists they don't like. To your point about the olden days, I also think it's it's interesting and probably relevant to this, is you're now newspaper reporters. World, We used to live in a world of newspapers. That world has shrunk. The world of not newspaper reporters has grown exponentially since then. So what you're asking is for a very, very specific subset of journalists to take these kind of monastic vows. Not to tweet about the end of Roe versus Wade or whatever the political issue issue of the day and be surrounded by journalists or kind of sort of semi-journalists who are tweeting about it like crazy. Mm -hmm. Surely that should be play a part in this too yeah well to go to go with what you said about the the sort of concern trolling i mean that's listen that this is one of the biggest issues that that journalism sort of has to take on and it's obviously very separate you got to be able to walk and chew gum to deal with this issue because it's totally separate from like the real day-to-day operations issues of what you do as your as a job and and this twitter edicts i think probably straddle the line between the two but you know you you could say we're just going to ignore the concern trolling. But I guess we, in, in an era where, you know, the top rated guy on cable news is just a larger than life concern troll, it's sort of hard to pretend like it doesn't matter, right? When when Tucker Carlson or whoever else goes after a New York Times reporter for having espousing a political opinion, right? I mean, it happens all the time. The effects are sometimes more pronounced than others, but it's a real issue that newspapers have to have to deal with. Um, so, I mean, but but it's not an issue that they should have to deal with, right? I mean, it's not a thing that like should that should no one believes that should actively. I mean, that should actually like affect the way that they do coverage. That they that they do journalism and assign coverage or whatever else, and yet it's going to. And so, I don't know. I feel like if I feel like the time spent writing the don't tweet memos is probably better spent actually figuring out an organizational plan to deal with the sort of concern troll present and future. These and people have, are going to attack us no matter what. Yeah. So what do we do? Yeah. What's our plan for? Give me, for, give me a, give me like an antiseptic 2000 word memo on the path forward vis-a-vis concern trolls rather than wasting my time with just like piddly, borderline HR memos about what I should be tweeting. That kind of leads us into the recent news about the athletic, David, that Laura Wagner reported on defector headline was under New York times ownership. The athletic lays down no politics rule for staff. Part of the further New York Timesization of that sports publication. And that to me is an interesting aspect of all of this too. We're not just saying to our political reporters, or the person that covers the Supreme Court, hey, 
can't tweet about this. That will undermine the image of the newsroom. We're saying that to the Golden State Warriors beat writer, the person that reviews music for the newspaper. We're saying that to everybody. Now, maybe it's something you pointed to or nodded at a couple of minutes ago, which is it's just too complicated to do it any other way. And you don't want to pick and choose people in the newsroom who have special social media privileges. So you just issue blanket edicts. But that was an interesting aspect of this to me. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the, there's a man. I've, I have a lot of issues with this, um, but let me just take a really narrow view of it. I mean, a really, I'll make a really narrow argument. If you look at a place like the Athletic, you look at the sports journalism landscape more broadly. What you see is a generation of quote unquote sports writers that are have an outsized representation of people that come from the podcasting and blogging worlds, right? And I think sort of inherent in a lot of that is that your person, your personhood is built into your writing. We talked about this a lot of different ways. You could tell somebody not to, not to talk about political things, but like the person you hired is, I mean, if the person you hired has a personal experience that they would normally talk about, or that they you know that that would normally be applicable to not their not the beat but just their public presence it's crazy to think that something as impactful as Roe versus Wade being overturned would not be a part of the discussion not be a part of the personality of the person that you hired for their personality right mm-hmm. and we already have Clarence Thomas out here talking about all the other landmark cases he wants to go after do you really expect that that all of the all of your gay employees are gonna just like stick to sports if they if they if they if they go after gay marriage next do you think that's an appropriate it's an appropriate thing is this is an appropriate expectation of your of your newsroom i mean it's it, it i understand the motivation you know but it's just like there's some things we joked about this in different ways. Or sometimes when you just when you when you say something or tweet something or write something, all that someone should have to say is, "Man, it sounds you, you're sounding a lot like fill in the blank right here." If if you're sending out a company memo, and that could basically be distilled down to stick to sports, knowing like the his, knowing just the modern history of that phrase, maybe back off. You know, maybe reconsider. <laughs> I don't know. It just seems it just seems like the more practical, the more practical practicality minded some of these decisions are the less actually like practical they are i don't it's just it's it's just very strange you talk about stuff that may be coming down the pike from the supreme court i mean just think of the last six years if you enforced these guidelines on social media how many things people would have been asked to sit out trump uh-huh covid more trump black lives matter more COVID. I mean, we you could go on and on again. Roe versus Wade. We're not, we're not talking about one moment in time here. We're talking about a whole period of American life. And to sort of look into the look back into history for guidance now is in some ways helpful, but in some ways it's totally it's totally impotent because we have such a divided America right now. And I know it's sort of like just trite to say at this point, but like. Like there's going to be times in the future where the line should be clear, right? If you had a contingent of, if you had like 
a political party in America that was like pro-Nazi in 1936, could we not comment on Nazism during the during the summer games, you know, like during the Berlin Olympics? Like, would that be out of bounds? And, you know, there's it's like there's always there's going to be something I, I use that very deliberately because it's the most extreme example. But it's sports. You know, it's where sports and politics collide. These things are going to keep happening. And if the answer is, well, that would be OK, then then the, then there's no line. If there's any line, then there, I mean, if there, if there's no line somewhere, there's no line anywhere. And you have to come to terms with that. Yeah. How many sports writers have been saluted after they got off the job or passed away by, you know what? He was really, really objective. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's not that's not that's not really what we go to. Those are the people that disappear into the ether. Fair, perhaps. Uh, called him like he saw him. OK, mm-hmm. but he observed a newspaper's ideal. Policy of objectivity. When it came to sports and all the issues swirling around sports, when that when when that when that man or woman dies, that's the someone will tweet about it. That's that's a tweet that'll get a lot of retweets. It will not get a lot of quote tweets. You know what I mean? Like it's like it's just people are like, oh yeah, my like I, I agree with that. I, I, I'm saddened by this this much. Click, you know, like that's it. David, let us do the overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter. Made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received. A couple of runners up this week. We considered people responding to John Mellencamp's anguished message about school shootings with ain't that America. We considered Joe (laughs) Biden's bike accident being compared to the pilot episode of the West Wing. By the way, West Wing, something I kind of inhaled and absorbed rather than actually watched much. Mm-hmm. Kind of the King Leopold's ghost of primetime for me. But this week's winner, David, comes from Kevin Anderson. It involves what we just talked about, the re- reversal of the 1973 Supreme Court decision, Roe versus Wade. It was a grim but pointed overworked Twitter joke to write, be sure to set your clocks back 50 years before you go to bed tonight. <coughs> oh, wow, that's good. That's about all you can find to take solace in. Congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York, we want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away. Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. This episode is brought to you by Lincoln and the all-new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid, featuring a customizable 48-inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh my God. The world isn't wide enough. 
Visit Lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford or its affiliates. All right, in the notebook dump, David, I have several items I want to run by you. First comes from valued listener Sean Devine. What's up with the journalist saying, I'm not reporting this, but on podcasts. Is this their version of off the record, a preface that clears space to say things for which they don't want to be held accountable? Huh. Um, do I have to answer this? <laughs> you want me to start? <laughs> no, no. It's funny because when I when you told me this was a topic, I was not thinking about podcasts. It's a really, it's, I, I was thinking very specifically about Adam Davidson emptying out the notebook on Twitter lately. You know, like there's been a lot of that was he. I thought incredibly like admirable and just from a press box standpoint, interesting turn of events. He's not the only person that's ever done it, but but it's been it's sort of become a, a, a moment where he's just like, like let me. It started off I think with like let me explain why why there's a lot of stuff that people take for you know take as gospel that couldn't make it into an actual article about a subject, mm-hmm. right? Um, and 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 kind of evolved into like here's everything that I couldn't say in the article and it, but but that I actually believe right um it, it, it was it's pretty incredible and and and, it, and in some ways I think incredibly inform I mean obviously informative it is very helpful to in an era where the newspapers themselves are under increased uh scrutiny and and increase and, and feeling the increased pressure to to sort of stay between the lines. Uh, it's helpful to know all the information surrounding it, to kind of get the annotation, the annotated version of what you're, you know, of what you've already read. Um, so that's where, I, that, that that's where my mind went, right? It's like, here's all the stuff that I couldn't say, but I could say on Twitter. Now, if you're talking about on podcasts, it's obviously a much less pressing, less like dire issue. And, and, and I don't want to like just flippantly conflate the two, but I mean, it does go to a sort of it does it does go to a similar place, which is that like so much of journalism, well, the ideal of journalism can be a lot of different things, but like it is in some ways they would you would say a, a conversation between like you know the institution and the reader, right? It's just a one sided one. Now you kind of I mean a podcast is still sort of one sided because it's just being heard, you know, even no matter how many people are talking, but it does make it more conversational. You know, and 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 information is not strictly, you know, governed by the same guidelines of like newspaper journalism. So it's helpful. It's interesting. And and when we're talking about sports, you know, writers and stuff, it's fun to have all of the Kyrie Irving rumors that you can't really like source source, but like you've heard from one person who you believe and you know, whatever. Like that's like that's the sort of information economy that the sports world runs on. And 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 yeah, I think that, you know, Bill always jokes about aggregators and stuff. I mean, I, people are going to get aggregated for saying that stuff, whether or not they put up the, the, their defense. But that's because it's, these are the conversations we want to have. You know, I mean, these are people want to speculate. You're basically just giving the guidelines for speculation. Absolutely. I mean, I remember one of the first lessons I learned from my University of Texas recruiting website was that readers would always go to the moderators, the mods, and say, 
just tell us everything you know, whether you know it to be true or not. Yeah. They wanted the scoops, the stuff that was nailed down, but then they also wanted all the stuff that was not nailed down and might actually turn out to be false. Mm-hmm. They wanted both of those things. So there was an obvious interest for readers in having that information out in the world. And I would contend that there's a pretty big interest for reporters in, hey, I'm 80% sure this is right. Yeah. This is not a trade necessarily or something's going to come down, but I heard this is happening. And I want a safe space to put that out in the world because I think you want to hear that too. Something that's kind of speculation, you know, kind of reported, kind of informed thinking that isn't quite a scoop. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's be, let's be clear just for one second. You can be, you as a human being can be a hundred percent. Something's true without it being, uh, sourced well enough for a mainstream newspaper to put into print. Right. Very, that's very, that's true. If you yes. told me I'm quitting the ringer, I would believe that I would know that as fact, right. Now, whether or not <laughs> I need an extra source for that or need to go seek comment from Bill Simmons or whatever, it's like, that would be that that's that we're, we're just going by, by, you know, by the, by the guidebook at that point, but you're right. 80% is great. And guess what? 50% is great. 30% is great. I mean, I guess you wouldn't really go to 30 because you know what? If like, like if Zach Lowe or Brian Windhorst or whoever has just like a cockamamie idea about something, it's probably a lot more, it probably merits a lot more discussion than my cockamamie idea about something going on in the NBA, right? Because mm -hmm. like they're more plugged in than I am. So that's sure. like, that's what I'm talking about. It's a guideline. It's you're, you're putting up like the, 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 the guardrails for speculation and it's, it's a, it, it, it makes her, good conversation yeah we should actually put the percentage on it like the health department out here in los angeles used to put the grades on the restaurants b minus you know c plus <laughs> a plus uh you know Ky kevin durant will be traded to the trailblazers eh, c right c plus mm -hmm. but i, I like want to know something i want to know um i think we should do at some point a whole segment about players current and former in the nba taking over the media the whole new media old media debate yeah maybe we'll slot that in for next tuesday but i did want to point out one very funny feature of this which is jj reddick had mm -hmm. kendrick perkins on his old man in the three podcast oh yeah and i don't know if you saw this perkins admitted that during the 2008 playoffs when he was playing for boston he was secretly hoping that lebron would get injured so that the Celtics could win the series. Well, an aggregator, NBA Central, wrote that up. Kendrick Perkins says he was so scared to face LeBron's calves in Game 7 and 2008 playoffs that he prayed Superstar would tear ACL. <laughs> and JJ, reading Twitter, tweets, you should start tagging the source because you don't create any content yourself. Now, there's going to be a lot of features, David, of athletes moving into the space traditionally occupied mm -hmm. by journalists. But here we are. They're where we were 20 years ago with the Huffington Post. Wait, there's this aggregator that wrote up all the hard work I did and got the headline mm -hmm. and didn't credit what? me sufficiently in the yes. tweet or in the headline? Mm -hmm. 
how many journalists have you heard complain about that over the years? Oh, so many. Here we are. Now it's affecting J.J. Reddick. Dude, we've had conversations on this podcast, which has not been around for very long, about like the New York Times' unwillingness to hyperlink at times. It seems like they're sort of moving. They're sort, they've sort of figured mm-hmm. that part out. New Yorker I'm, was a violator, too, by the way. Oh, yeah. The New Yorker's big violator. That might have been what we talked about. I might have just gotten that wrong. But I know the New York. I mean, the, obviously... You know, you read an article in the New York Times, it's not exactly linked up like, you know, an old Gawker post or something would have been. Um, but podcasts, I mean, separate from the fact that, yes, we're all coming now. Now they're all feeling the pain that journalists felt for so long. I mean, podcasts are a whole separate thing, too. Right. Because even if you did credit it, you're not cre- you're not fo- you know, you're not sending out a hyperlink to a news article that can then be read and immediately d- you can discern whether or not, you know, the quote <laughs> is 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 valid. You know, whether or not the pull quote or the scare quote or whatever else is like what the article is actually about. At this point, you'd be linking out to a podcast that someone now has to say, well, am I going to spend an hour trying to figure this thing, (laughs) (laughs) trying to figure out what the context clues were for this? Somebody sometimes they do do the clip. Yeah. But of course, then you have a minute and you're not sure what was said in the minute before that and the minute after that. Mm -hmm. And it may be totally out of context. Well, there's also. Yeah. I mean, listen. A lot of people are doing that now, right? We do podcasts. We put up video. We put up little video clips. We put up, you know, quotes or whatever. I mean, we used to. I used to, at least I used to joke at the ringer that we should just aggregate Bill before anybody else got the chance to, right? Just like push pause on publication <laughs> for an hour and just pull everything out that could possibly get out there and whatever. Bullet points. But like, yeah, but for the vast majority of the audience. They're only coming to it in podcast form and, you know, they want to experience it as a new thing, not as something with like with like a, a you know, spark notes on the side. Um, it, it's it's a, it's a it's an interesting dilemma because, you know, it's this it's just like all those like, you know, whatever Instagram scam artists of years past that are still out there. But people who just like steal other people's content and republish it and have a trillion followers or whatever else. You get a lot, I mean, you can get a lot of traction just by like grabbing other people's stuff and circulating it, you know, half the stuff. I mean, I don't follow any people like that on Twitter. And I feel like a quarter of the stuff that I see is stuff like that. You know, I mean, it's just, it's, I, I, it's the nature of the beast in some weird way. I want to make it clear that here at the press box, we are pro aggregation. Grab away, <laughs> put it in any context you want. <laughs> we'll take it. Whatever you want to do. Oh, we're 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 an open source podcast here. Uh, another news item for you, David. This just came down right before we started. Alex Wagner is going to replace Rachel Maddow at 9 p.m. on MSNBC. Believe she is going to be working Tuesday to Friday. Rachel Maddow's very unusual deal she signed last year. Do we ever talk a, about this on the air? I still don't understand it. Yeah. It's like, here's a ton more money not to host your show most nights. Mm-hmm. She's still hosting it on Mondays and doing various sundry other projects for MSNBC. Yeah. I don't even, where's Alex Wagner even been? She was on MSNBC. I feel like she had a pilot on it, like a show on MSNBC. She did. That was sort of like, just sort of disappeared. And according um, to the New York Times article, that show was canceled when they made the day part of Inmer, the daytime programming on MSNBC, more newsy mm-hmm. and less opiniony. So she's been on the circus on Showtime. Oh, right. Okay. Um, um, but now she is back, or now she's in primetime hosting the nine o'clock hour formerly occupied by Rachel Maddow. 
I remain interested in how much variance there is between hosts on networks like MSNBC. Rachel Maddow is a giant star in that universe. Mm-hmm. But what's the difference between people who want to watch or consume in some way the 9 p.m. show on MSNBC if it's hosted by Rachel Maddow or if it's hosted by Alex Wagner? Well, I, think I believe asked- it's some difference, but Fox has shown that in their programming, it really doesn't matter. They've substituted all kinds of people in and out of the primetime shows. And everyone seems to be yeah, a bigger Yeah, but part of it is the, the machine previous. that they put behind people, right? The, the, I mean, the machine that, that went, I mean, Tucker Carlson had failed, you know, at, at multiple TV show jobs before he got this one. And obviously he made a really decision, a really deliberate decision to just become a terrible human being for ratings. And, but, but, but part of it is that, is that Fox, you know, put him in that spot and sort of anointed him and got behind him and obviously didn't react to a lot of the pressure that various pressures that have been exerted to try to get him off the air. Um, But it's tough. I mean, you're right. I I think that, you know, it's funny. Ali Velshi has been hosting a lot of the Mad Al blocks when she's not been on the air. And I love Ali Velshi. It reminds me a little bit of, this is very personal story. So if you'll, you know, humor me. My dad's a preacher and he's a really good preacher. Uh, He's very, he's, very liberal dude, Southern Baptist, but very liberal. Eventually got, you know, booted from the Southern Baptist Convention uh, for <laughs> various heresies. But um, he's very intellectual, but also just, you know, comes from a very traditional, like, emotive place. He's not, you know, not grabbing the Bible and waving his hand at the sky or whatever, but it's, he's not just a robot up there. But for for the for the play, for the the region that we grew up, he was incredibly intellectual. When, when I left home, went to college and, and started going to churches, I, I ended up going towards the churches that were like incredibly intellectual, incredibly eggheady because I couldn't replace the total package of my father. Obviously, this is my very personal opinion, but like you go to the one thing that you can like really put a score on, put a number to, right? They got the, they, they studied, you know, they did all the research, they did everything else, they hit those beats. And a lot of ways, I feel like that's what Olive she did for the Rachel Maddow audience, right? It's like he, he was incredibly like, meticulous and i mean this is a compliment competent at the job but i think at some point if you're running the network you look at that and you say well what's important is not is not digging in and holding on to 75 percent of the viewership at this point the 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 goal has to be to create a new star right Mm -hmm. To, to find to find someone else who eventually will be who i mean as crazy as it sounds, the you want to build people who become too big to host every day of the week, right? I mean, you want to be sure. people who that's who, a great who, who outgrow what you know the 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 wonderful place that you put them in, and that has to be that has to be the gambit, you know, with bringing out Alex Wagner on. She's very good. I mean, she's really really good, and certainly has. I mean, it's it certainly has the credentials and the and the broadcasting ability to, you know, really succeed in a in a place where obviously MSNBC want some new growth we talked last week david about how novels could be read as audiobooks by your favorite podcasters i believe you even pinpointed novels that are now out of copyright well listener (laughs) megan with an h points out that in fact somebody is already doing this last january the staff of planet money read the great gatsby which is now in the public domain. Can we play a clip of Gatsby as read by the staff of Planet Money? Gatsby believed in the green light, the orgastic future that year by year recedes before us. 
It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we'll run faster, stretch out our arms farther. And one fine morning, so we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. I guess I should have said spoiler alert. <laughs> somebody hasn't somebody hasn't read it yet. Somebody was planning to read it. That was in the queue. That was on. They had the the what, whatever the book version of TiVo of that uh, for that book. Yeah. <laughs> it's time for David Shoemaker guesses the strain pun headline. Yeah. Today's headline, David, comes from valued listeners Matthew J. Burley, Zach Jones, and Matthew Moore. It's from the New York Times. The subhead reads, an American actor moved to Britain to restore his crumbling ancestral home, but fixing up a 60-room castle isn't easy. So we are fixing up a British castle. What was the New York Times' strained pun headline? Oh, man. Almost sounds like a home reno show, doesn't it? I was going to say Fixer Upper or um, Property Brother... Uh... What is mm. the what are the what are the big ones? Um, R- wrong TV reference here. Think more British ancestral home. Oh, oh. home. What was it? Trading br- spaces or British Trading. sweeping British estate? Oh, Downton Abbey. Or Photographed like the, in kind of a soft, downstairs? beautiful what? light. Yeah, Downton Abbey. So this so, would be. Um, it was crumbling. Down- remember, Downton Shabby. Downton-, Downton Shabby. Oh, that's good. Downton Shabby. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Production magic by Erica Cervantes. I was on the East Coast last week to record some podcasts. Talked to Angelo Cataldi in Philadelphia. Yeah. Uh, and then I went up to New York. So coming Wednesday, David Pablo Torre, who's done many things at ESPN, now host of the ESPN Daily. We talked about podcasting. We talked about the process, just enough to get everybody all worked up. And what happened to High Noon? Very interesting conversation. That'll be Wednesday. David and I are off july 4th which is monday we're back tuesday with more lukewarm takes about the media see you then david see you later Brian. this episode is brought to you by hotels.com if you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids games it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel we're all over the place sometimes You know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York. You want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away? Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.